This year marks the cinematic milestone for a film that wasn't the greatest movie of all times, but was kind of powerful in its day. It's been 50 years now since the premiere of the film The Summer of 42. Some of you might be familiar with that movie, probably many of you aren't. It's not a plot that's necessarily best suited for the 9 a.m. Mass on Sunday. It's not a bad movie. I'd recommend it to any high school kid. But it's a powerful movie, and it's a poignant one. The protagonist is a high school kid, and it's basically one of those coming-of-age films about a rather dramatic experience of first love that's quite a bit more dramatic than most of us have known. Set, as the title implies, in the midst of World War II, and it highlights really the tragic, and sometimes senseless loss of life that can happen so suddenly, that can erupt what is meant to be an abiding love, and that can then be almost incidentally replaced by something as people are grasping to deal with grief. I'm mentioning this because the guy who writes the story, and it's based on a true story, he's writing it in his middle age and he's reflecting back on what he knew as a kid. And at the very end of the film, and if you've ever seen it, again, the the musical score is really haunting, but at the end of the film, he says something as he's looking back, and he's just acknowledging that in that summer, he became someone that he hadn't been before. And that event transformed the rest of his life. But what he says is, every time we gain something significant in our lives, we leave a little something behind. And he's talking about the sort of naive view of the world, the innocence that he had. He certainly gained something, but he left something behind. And he's not trying to go back and hold on to it, but he is acknowledging with a kind of brutal honesty that there was something left behind and that would always be in the past. I wish sometimes that we looked at the Christian spiritual journey a little bit like that. And what I mean is when we talk about growing closer to God, when we talk about coming to the sacraments, when we talk about deepening our prayer lives, we often just talk about it as if it's heaping one joy on top of another and more and more glory and we bask in God's love. But I think if we're really honest, we have to admit that if you really want to grow closer to God, you are going to have to leave something behind. Now let me be clear, I'm not just talking about leaving our old sinful ways behind or bad habits. I'm a big fan of that. We should all leave that stuff behind if we can. But it's more than that. It's leaving behind a way of looking at the world through sort of naive eyes. Because Christianity is not naive in any way, shape, or form. It's having to admit that there's something very challenging we're called to. And it's not just the challenge of try to live to be a better person. Yeah, that's not easy to do. But it's recognizing that there's a certain ephemeral quality to some of the things we most cherish and want to hold on to. And even though we are called to something deeper, before we've crossed that threshold, it can be a rather daunting proposition. 
You see that in two different ways in these readings. In that first reading, what you see are those early Christians who have begun to form their identity. They've begun to wrap their hearts and minds around the fact that they are someone special. They are a special group. They have a new way of looking at the world. And then all of a sudden, into that community, into that growing comfort, erupts this guy who's been terrorizing them. In comes Saul, the man who's been arresting them, sending some of them almost certainly to their deaths, all of them to prison or some degree of suffering, and there he is on the doorstep. And are they going to accept that he really has converted? Are they going to accept that this kind of change of heart is really possible? It's easy for us to sit back and say, oh, that was the great Paul. Of course, they should embrace him. Look at everything he has in his future. But I don't know that I always fully appreciate what they were being asked to let go of. They were being asked to let go of a world in which everything had sort of started to begin making sense. This is who we are, and that is who they are. And as long as we keep them clearly defined, we're going to be all right. And all of a sudden, that boat is rocked, and they've got to challenge themselves and say, could he really have changed? Could he really be one of us now? Is that the way this works? Can anybody come in? Can anybody walk into the locked room? I thought it was just us and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I just invite us maybe to think about it, not from the lens of our perspective, the great St. Paul, but to look at it from their perspective. And then to bring it a little bit closer to home, out of Bible land. Is there someone in our own life or heart that we're struggling to accept the conversion of? A lot of times, a way we protect our hearts from being hurt again is to keep everyone in their well-defined place. And if you've hurt me, or you've betrayed me, or you've led me in a place that I'd rather not go, okay, I can forgive you, I can go to confession, I can say all the right things, but am I really willing to let you walk into my life once again? And sometimes with dear friends, the answer is yes, absolutely. But a lot of times with people we felt threatened by from the beginning, we don't want them closer. We don't want to have to rework our world. And if we do somehow let them in, if we take seriously all the beautiful church language we pray and sing about, then we have to let something go, but that really means letting someone go in our own hearts. And then in the gospel, in the gospel in that beautiful sense of where they are trying in their own way, to understand who Jesus is, not after his death, but they've got the man himself. And Jesus says, familiar words, I am the vine, you are the branches, my father is the vine grower. Anything that doesn't bear fruit, he lops off. Okay, great, that's good Christian language. Cut off those sinful ways. But then he goes on and says, and even those areas that are life-giving, the father prunes so that there can be more life. And once again, we're asked to leave something behind. Something maybe that we treasure, that is very meaningful to us, that is a source of comfort or joy. But the Father wants to prune that too, so that something even greater can come. 
but I know the life-giving branch I have right here. I don't know what this promise of the future is actually going to bring. And if we really want to embrace the Christian life, that's part of the deal. That joy in the future requires the cutting off of some things now. And I don't say that to be a downer on a beautiful spring morning. There is joy in this life. It is something we should all feel grateful to be a part of and happy to invite others to. But Christianity is not naive. And there's something about waking up on Easter morning. You ask yourself, what happened last night? Do I really take that seriously? Because if we are, then we are going to be asked to leave something behind, something that we can never have again, something that we may long for wistfully at various moments when the Christian life gets challenging, but really will never hold in quite the same way. And so I just invite us as we move near the end of the Easter season, I like to think of it as a time where the sort of drunken happiness of the Easter vigil matures into the deep reality of Christianity. As we move near the end of this Easter season, to simply allow ourselves with these beautiful scriptural readings, and maybe even with the 50th anniversary of the summer of 42, to ask ourselves in the presence of the Lord, what do you want me to leave behind? I can never move ahead unless I do so.